this is Mike Dilt with the Relax Back UK Show. On the Relax Back UK Show, we explore all kinds of health topics, so keep listening and enjoy the ride. Hi, and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilt, with the Relax Back UK Show this week. We've spoken about diabetes before on the show, but this is something that I really haven't come across before. And then other studies showed that if you had a low testosterone, you were three to four times more likely to develop diabetes. Professor Jeffrey Hackett explains the link between testosterone levels and diabetes. Then what is this about? And it's a it's a condition that lots of people are, are really suffering with, but there's not that much treatment out there for them. So it's really yeah. important for them to get uh, access to good treatment. Dr. Meyer and Ed Kirk are both sleep experts. So if you're one of the many who suffers sleep issues, some help for you. So please do stay tuned for a great show. Thank you. Before we hear from the first guest today, avid listeners will remember a show I did on something called the breather, which is the device to help you to sort of learn to breathe or really relearn to breathe using your diaphragm a little more efficiently. And uh, I was using it, I have been using it, to try and get rid of a sort of a nervous breathing issue that I sometimes get. I, I feel the need to yawn, but it feels like I can't get enough air into the system. And this has been with me for a number of years, not all the time, but it just sort of creeps up on me. So I used the breather. Uh, I used it for a, a month um, and then I used it a little bit now and again after that. And I have to say that the issue has got a, a lot better. There probably are many variables involved in why I, I get troubled with this occasionally. But I have to say by using the breather, it did seem to allay the issues. And when I... Um, did the program on it I said I would get back on the uh, on the subject and provide some feedback so there we are that that is it it's the breather by Luft for Life if people are interested now my first guest today is Professor Jeffrey Hackett he's a consultant in urology and sexual medicine at the TED clinic however the main topic is not urology and sexual medicine it's diabetes so why are we talking about diabetes and not urology and sexual medicine. That was my first question to him. Okay, well, well, I started out with an interest in uh, urology and erectile dysfunction, which which really goes back to uh, the uh, the 80s uh, with the development of drugs like Viagra, which is perhaps the most famous drug in the world. Uh, and and so I did a lot of. Uh, did you studies. buy any shares in the 80s? I, I couldn't possibly answer that. It's uh, it's illegal for doctors to buy shares when Is they're it? involved oh, okay. in clinical trials. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I would have been locked up for that. But um, <laughs> uh, it, it soon became obvious when we were were treating these patients that um, the vast majority of them actually had diabetes. Uh, so there was it was quite evident from the beginning that there was a strong link between diabetes and erectile dysfunction. And then we realised that. Uh, erectile dysfunction and low libido were closely related to testosterone. 
And if you put the, th the, the three things together, we then found that about 50% of, of men with type 2 diabetes had low testosterone. And then other studies showed that if you had a low testosterone, you were three to four times more likely to develop diabetes. So the big question there comes along, whereas traditionally the, the way to prevent yourself getting diabetes was exactly what you were telling me earlier, was intensive dietary control and lifestyle advice, increased exercise. You can't do much about your family history. So if there's diabetes in your family, you're at increased risk. But you can do a lot about what you eat and your exercise and lifestyle. That's right. But even despite that, uh, th there still wasn't, you still weren't preventing diabetes. Uh, right. uh, so the big question was then, if you treated the low testosterone level, could you prevent uh, men from developing type 2 diabetes? Right. I'm going to come on to that. I'm just going to interrupt for a moment, just, just for this example of a person, um, so Stephen Redgrave, actually, which is kind of yep. what kicked off my my interest in this because you know he he's a very famous rower he he won five olympic golds in five olympics on the trot so yeah. we're not talking a couch potato here and between the fourth and fifth olympic gold medals when he was 37 and possibly one of the fittest and strongest 37 year olds on the planet he was diagnosed with diabetes so he was on the face of it uh doing everything right you know he'd be the last person you'd expect to to get this um however uh from what you're saying you know there's other things at play here yeah he he, uh, he did have a family history of diabetes which is of course uh what i said earlier is that's the one thing you can't do anything about you can't change your parents or your grandparents you're you're stuck with them um there, there 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 are there is some good evidence that intensive exercise can suppress testosterone levels you know for example we know that with female athletes uh they can suppress their pituitary hormones so that their periods stop this right. is quite common uh, amongst performance female athletes so by the same mechanism uh, if you uh, are a male athlete and you in, uh, exercise intensively, you can suppress your pituitary function, which will drop your testosterone level. And as I've told you earlier, if you have a low testosterone, you are three to four times more likely to develop diabetes. Right. Okay. So it, this is a possible mechanism that could have come into play in Steve's case. What sure. I can't do is I can't put the clock back and do blood tests from the 90s to see what his testosterone levels were at that time. I've only uh, met and, uh, and and treated Steve over the last few months. Right. So okay. I can only I can only judge by what I find now. But that's a possible mechanism that could have come into play in Steve's case. Sure, I get it. Now, I, I specialize in the uh, unfair, impossible, and sometimes slightly stupid questions. So this, this next one might actually be all, all of those. If, if you have low testosterone or a, an individual, individual has low testosterone, does that make you more likely to get diabetes directly 
or if you have low testosterone, are you likely to be, I don't know, a bit fatter? And that will lead you to get diabetes. What, what's, the, what's the connection? The, the, the answer is, is that we get around that by saying that it's, it's bi-directional. In other words, if you have low testosterone, you're more likely to get diabetes. And if you have diabetes, you're more likely to get low testosterone. So they're both true. It's a chicken and egg situation, if you want. Right. Okay. So uh, it's, rather it's an like impossible if, question. If you have raised cholesterol, you're more likely to get high blood pressure. And if you have high blood pressure, you're more likely to get low <laughs> cholesterol. It's yeah, very okay. similar. Yeah. All right. So um, if you are in this situation, so if, if, if a patient comes to you and has low testosterone and you do a little more digging, do some more tests and, oh, actually, either you've got diabetes or you're in danger of getting diabetes, can you do something about it? If you sort out the testosterone problem, uh, I, I, can you inject extra testosterone? Will the diabetes then problem be abated? Right. Well, this is where we come to the, the clinical evidence that you like so much, um, uh, because I'll point you to a study that was published uh, about two years ago from Australia. It's called the T4DM study, which stands for testosterone for diabetes mellitus. And this is the biggest study ever done to answer the very question that you've just asked. Oh, good. I like that. And what they did is they had uh, 1,007 men who were picked up as being at risk of developing type 2 diabetes. In other words, they, had, they were overweight. They had pre-diabetes. And they randomized them so that half got put on um, a, a diet and exercise regime. And the other half got the same diet and exercise regime plus they got given testosterone injections. The first group got a placebo testosterone injection. So they all thought that they were having an injection that might have been testosterone, okay? Yep. And they followed them up for two years. And what they found was that there was a 40% reduction in progression to diabetes. In the placebo and lifestyle intervention, 23% had developed diabetes within two years, which is quite a lot. Mm. And in the testosterone treated group, it was only 12%. So, wow. you know, almost half. Yeah. And if you looked at the rest of it, they the, the ones who were treated with testosterone also lost weight. Uh, uh, they had better quality of life issues, less depression, uh, and they had better sexual function in terms of libido and their erections. Right, so there okay. were multiple physical benefits plus prevention of diabetes. And indeed, there was a reversal of diabetes in some of the patients. Fantastic. So that, this shows so, testosterone is a, is a serious player yeah. in preventing diabetes. I mean, every, there's a lot of talk about the massive growth in diabetes the, the world over. You know, in the developed world, in the world that's developing, you know, it's getting quite um, a problem in India as well. So, yeah. I mean, is it feasible that actually the underlying problem is in, in some way 
a lack of a worldwide lack of testosterone. Well, it, it obviously uh, doesn't explain uh, the the in, the rise in women, but men do have um, higher rates of, of type two diabetes worldwide, and they have a much higher uh, mortality and morbidity. Diabetes affects them more readily. So the certain, it's certainly not the only answer to the diabetes uh, epidemic, uh, uh, because that wouldn't explain the increases in women. Right. But it's like anything. There's there's no magic bullet. There's never one explanation for any disease. Sure. But this is certainly a major player and an explanation as to why men do so badly. Interesting. So uh, from the study that you, you just mentioned, the one in Australia, um, could one of the thoughts leading on from that be potentially that there is a, a huge sort of group of people that aren't yet diabetic, but could potentially become diabetic? Um, and actually, it might be quite easy to prevent that. Well, this is, this is exactly what my interest is. There, there are probably uh, about 2.5 million uh, uh, men in the UK walking around with pre-diabetes who haven't yet been diagnosed. Right. Uh, and, and it's how you get to these men. Uh, and that's where um, we're failing with the NHS because there's just too much work for doctors with the conditions that we know that people have got. And this is why we need um, uh, uh, um, initiatives like TED's Health, where people can uh, go online and they can get themselves a blood test themselves and get checked. And they can even get a consultation with a with an expert physician to be able to go through their tests and assess their relative risks. Okay. Uh, and, and, and this, and, and I've been the, for the last twenty years. I also conducted my own study and i know you like evidence because you told me earlier so this is a study called the blast study b-l-a-s-t which stands for birmingham lichfield atherston sutton and tamworth which were the 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 towns and cities involved in the study and this was nearly a thousand men and these were men who had uh type 2 diabetes and what we did is we treated them with testosterone and we showed benefits in terms of re, uh, weight reduction, increase in physical strength, uh, improvement of depression, improvement of diabetes parameters, improvement of sexual function. But most importantly of all, we showed after four years a significant reduction in mortality. Right. In the men with diabetes and low testosterone, 20 percent died within four years. In the group that we treated, only three point five percent died in four years. Right. So if you look that up, that's called the BLAST study. Okay. Right. I think I might put a link to that in um, in, in in my blog or, or 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 other kind of stuff that goes with this this show. That's that's extraordinary. Yes. All right, so what generally, 20% of those people were dead at the end of four years, did you say? Correct, yeah, which shows that ha that having low testosterone if you've got diabetes is not good news. Not good news. And what did they die of? 
they they died of of, of cardiac events, uh, heart attacks, strokes, heart failure, which generally isn't something you um, link with diabetes. Oh yes, the, the the major cause of death in diabetes is cardiovascular disease. Is it all right? Uh, they also develop um, a chronic kidney disease. The kidneys fail in diabetes. And there are studies that show now that if you treat low testosterone, you can actually delay the progression to end-stage diabetes, to end-stage kidney disease. Right. So, for example, that, that often means going on to dialysis. Yeah. And there's a big study done in the States which showed that you can delay by over 12 months the time to, 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 to requiring dialysis in end-stage kidney disease. Okay. So right. these are so, life-changing things. Yeah. I mean, it, so it looks like testosterone can be very useful for, for people that have diabetes. Now, you, you, you mentioned this massive number of people in the UK and um, even more massive number of people in the whole world, two and a half million in the UK who are potentially walking around with pre-diabetes and not knowing it. So to try and get at, at those people, potentially some of the cause of that could well be um, a, a problem with testosterone, a lack of testosterone. What sort of symptoms should these kind of people potentially be uh, alerted to? You did mention some of them, but, you know, is it, are there others? Are there, you know, potential um, sexual dysfunction, but yeah. anything else? I, I know you like your studies because you told me at the beginning, so I I've got another one for you yeah. here which is the EMAS study, which stands for European Male Aging Study. Right. Uh, and this is, a, this is a study of thousands of men from seven European countries uh, who were screened uh, for testosterone levels uh, about a decade ago and have been followed up for, for this period of time. Uh, and what that tells us is that the, the best predictive symptoms of having a low testosterone, uh, primarily loss of morning erections is the best predictor of a man having a low testosterone. Because the reason for that is that when you go to sleep, the body goes on to automatic pilot. Whereas if you have erectile dysfunction, that could be complicated by all sorts of things, stress, anxiety, your relationship not going very well, Mm -hmm. too much to drink, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the erections that men should get when they wake in the morning, which some men might find slightly annoying when they try to go to the loo, that's the best predictor of uh, whether your testosterone level is okay. okay. The next best one is loss of libido, because if you haven't got any desire for sex, there's no point in in going to get yourself some Viagra to do something that you're not interested in doing. I often give an analogy that there's no point in buying your husband a set of golf clubs if he's not interested in golf. He won't go and play golf just because he's got a nice new set of golf clubs. You've got to want to do something sure. in the first place. So those are the, the best three symptoms to predict. And when you get on to the others, such as, um, uh, you know, uh, tiredness, loss of energy, loss of motivation, poor sleep, depression, night sweats, mood swings, they're um, less specific 
And what I find in my practice is that GPs overdiagnose depression in these men and put them on an antidepressant. Right. Whereas if the man had gone and, and mentioned his sexual problems at the start, yeah. the GP would have been alerted to check his testosterone level because GPs know that testosterone's got something to do with sex and libido. But if the man doesn't mention it and the GP doesn't ask, it's not surprising they make the wrong diagnosis. Sure. And you so put them on the antidepressant and things get worse. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, th this sounds like it could be, you know, a, a very large problem that is leading on to a, a lot of men, you know, getting all sorts of things that they don't necessarily need, you know, but yeah. also leading on to them getting diabetes. I mean, yeah. oh, oh, so, again, another virtually impossible question, which you've probably got a study up your sleeve to answer. I've got a few more up my sleeve. If you oh, want great. To. <laughs> are, there, are there any estimates of, you know, how many people, how many men, say in the UK, that this could actually be uh, affecting as far as the diabetes is concerned? Uh, well, I, I think what we know about is that it, that pre-diabetes group is probably the best one to focus on. Yeah, because that's enough. I, I think if we it, the answer is it, you, you can reverse some of the uh, the diabetes, because interestingly enough, um, the problem we face in this country is that you can't make statements about things unless it's a licensed indication. Doctors yeah. get into trouble unless something's got a license. But interestingly enough, if you look at uh, the labeling of testosterone uh, products, it says on them that it may require a reduction in diabetes medication, which is as good as saying that it's improving diabetes because it's hardly a side effect if you can stop your diabetes tablets. That shows you that the treatment is improving your diabetes. Yeah. But it's actually listed on the product as a, as a side effect, uh, wow. which is slightly bizarre. Yes. But from my own experience having been uh you know 25 years running clinics where i'm treating these types of patients um uh, i i can honestly say that i've never uh treated a condition that's given me more satisfaction than picking up low testosterone in men with type 2 diabetes right. because not only do you reverse these symptoms and possibly prevent diabetes but you actually get the partners of these men coming up and, and i get stopped in the street and embraced by women which is something i i don't object to it's a good work if you can get it yeah yeah and they come up to me and they say thank you for giving me back the man i married now if i'd have controlled this chap's blood pressure or cholesterol they wouldn't have come up to me and said, "My, I'm feeling so much better since you treated my husband's cholesterol. No. But you're effectively treating two people if you change the man from being a miserable couch potato who just comes home, falls asleep and snores in the chair to somebody who wants to go out on nice country walks and, and sniff the flowers. That's a... Uh, a game changer for any relationship. And once the diagnosis has been made, 
you know, how, how quick can this turnaround potentially happen? Well, it depends on how low the person's testosterone level is. Uh, um, but, but uh, and so what what I always like to do, and my wife backs me up with this, I always like to under promise and over deliver. So I, I always tell patients that uh, to expect that it might take three to six months. But what you find is that some symptoms improve much earlier. So, for example, the libido improves quite uh, quite quickly. Mm-hmm. But but the actual erections can take a little bit longer. So I give all my patients a daily Tadalafil tablet, which, as you probably know, is the the daily uh, long acting one that will improve erections and morning erections, not okay. just the Saturday night special, which which has been sold to the public. That brings back the morning erections, bring back sexual spontaneity and combined with the testosterone that's the most immediate improvement that couples will make obviously things like losing weight losing belly fat putting on a little bit more muscular uh, bulk and becoming fitter and stronger will take perhaps six months and that needs to be given as, as well as the advice we talked about on lifestyle because the two things go hand in hand. But if you've got a low testosterone and you've got no motivation to get out of your chair and go to the gym, you don't even get started. And that's what is happening to so many men. Okay. So now if people are listening to this and thinking, oh, you know, I might come into that bracket. Um, Earlier in our chat, you you mentioned the test. So is uh, is. What, what is the test and is it something you can do at home or do you have to go to the hospital? What, tell us about that. Well, I, I should always encourage people to go to their GP because that's always the best starting point. And the way to get the best response from your G, GP is to actually mention if you've got those sexual problems because that will cause a, an electric light to go on in his brain and he's likely to check your testosterone level. If you're too shy and bashful and you don't mention that, he might make the wrong diagnosis and think you're depressed. So you've got to tell him the the full story to get the right diagnosis. Otherwise, and let's face it, we're going through a difficult time for general practice at the moment. People have been struggling, particularly during the pandemic and since, to see a GP, that if you go on the TEDS Health website, then you can get a blood test done uh, for, uh, you know, 50 pounds or for 99 pounds, you can get the full blood test plus a 30 minute consultation with a specialist who might even be myself if you're unlucky enough to get me on the day, uh, who'll take your history and, and give you an interpretation of all your results from your story and from all the blood tests. Okay, so is is the blood test? Do you, do you kind of get sent a package in the post and you do it at home? Yeah, you 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 get a kit arrive in the post and you can do it on a on a thumb stab. So oh. if you're squeamish, your partner can just jab your thumb and you squeeze the the the, the blood out and it, it it suck it up into a tube, package it off, and you get your results back uh, forty eight hours later. All right. So you, you don't need much blood at all, just a little don't drop. Need much blood at all. No. Okay. And then if it's um, uh, if it does show that it's low, 
then the second test might be done on a, a full blood test uh, right. because we might need to check some more things. Yeah. So this first one is a screener. If it's low, we'll do some more blood tests on uh, on a, a sample taken from a vein. And that can be either done through your doctor or through uh, attending a, a centre to get it done. Okay, very good. Right, so if people are listening to this, what two things, really. Want to find out more, maybe want to get the blood test done, or if they're really interested, you mentioned a whole load of uh, published papers. I don't know if there's a summary of those on a website as well. So essentially, where can people get more info? Well, so a lot of those are on the TED's Health website. Um, what, I've been busy for the last 12 months or so making sure that the the factual information is all there. Uh, and I, I've probably swamped them with clinical papers, but but um, myself and my colleagues have actually gone through it all to make sure that it's it translates into layman's language that they can all understand. All right. So that sounds like a, a very good place to look. Yep, absolutely. I, I and- wouldn't. I, I, I would warn them against going to some other sites because uh, there are some sites which uh, might be looking to sell them something that's unlicensed and commercial. You know, right. with, with us, you know, we're following guidelines uh, and uh, we always insist on the two tests. There'll be some questionnaires that are designed to pick up whether you've got uh, the symptoms of testosterone deficiency, whether you've got erectile dysfunction, and we even throw in whether or not you've got um, early prostate problems because uh, men of a certain age, uh, certainly when you get into the 50s, uh, uh, the treatment that we give uh, can also improve the prostate symptoms and stop men having to come under the surgeon's knife as they get older, which when you get to my age is is much more of a worry. Yeah. All right. Well, this might be the topic for a, 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 a an, an, another chat, possibly. Um, Jeffrey, yep. I um, didn't. I didn't set. I didn't set it up, but I. I do have papers on that one as well. Perfect. Well, yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe we can chat about that another time. But yep. for this particular topic of um, testosterone um, by itself, actually, we went on to and testosterone and the link to diabetes. I think that's potentially very important and could help a lot of people. So, so many thanks. I, I think this is absolutely huge and uh, I hope you find it's a, a game changer for you. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. So my guests who are sleep experts are first of all, Dr. Meyer, she's a clinical psychologist and helps people with sleep and Ed Kirk, he is master of the mattress. And I started by getting them to explain a little more about exactly what they do and how they help people. What is Master of the Mattress? Because I've got to say, it sounds like some slightly dubious 80s soft porn film title. <laughs> not at all, not at all. Um, so, I mean, I've been working in the bedding industry for a long time now, seen a lot of different mattresses, a lot of different designs, a lot of different sleep products, a lot of different pillows, um, but currently been working for um, Sealy for the last nine years. 
and really working on all of the kind of research that they've done with the orthopedic advisory board to effectively make a mattress that gives us the correct spinal alignment the best chance of getting a good quality sleep but not only that a great choice of comforts and a product that is hugely durable so i've seen a lot of different designs from a lot of different companies and that's really what i do so it's a job title master of the mattress is a job title is it then it is yes yes i see okay which uh, they 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 bestowed bestowed upon you. Very good. All right, and Doctor Meyer, then you're a, a sleep expert. Are, are you a, are you a, an MD, a medical doctor, or what? What's your background? I'm a clinical psychologist, so I often assess people with all sorts of sleep problems, like insomnia and trauma-related sleep problems, and I see people for a range of psychological therapies to help them with their sleep. Right. Okay. And of course. Well, just in my little sort of sphere, my world of people that I talk to, it's very common to have trouble going to sleep. It really is. So we know that so many people struggle with insomnia, which is either struggling to fall asleep or stay asleep. And it's a it's a condition that lots of people are, are really suffering with, but there's not that much treatment out there for them. So it's really yeah. important for them to get uh, access to good treatment. Are there any statistics, actually, of just how many people have trouble with this? Well, there's been lots of research done on this, and some reports say up to a third of the population really struggle with sleep, and some reports say even higher, as much as half. So there's definitely a lot of people who struggle with insomnia at some points during their life. And, uh, you know, it's more prevalent at different stages as well. So we know that it can affect uh, women going through the perimenopause. We also know that people in later life can have uh, more sleep difficulties because their sleep has become more fractious. And we also know that teenagers can really struggle with their sleep as well, especially if they are, you know, getting involved in uh, gaming and having lots of technology, which gets in the way of their sleep as well. Yes. All right. Technology. That's a great link into kind of going through some of the things which are unhelpful uh, for sleeping. And you mentioned one right there, technology. Um, is, is it because teenagers just stay up all night playing games or is it a bit <laughs> more sophisticated than that? Well, it can be. So for some teenagers, they can get into a state of flow, which means that they become more and more uh, linked into the technology and they find it harder to gauge when they're feeling sleepy. So for some teenagers, it, gaming can really get in the way. But generally we tend to de- define the interactive technologies rather than the passive technologies. So we know that passive technology like TV is generally thought to be kind of a bit better for, for us than interactive technology, like sort of, you know, doing lots of uh, Uh, social media on our phones so just before bed we try to uh, recommend that people reduce that kind of interactive technology just to give their bodies a chance to understand that it's time to wind down that it's time to relax and get ready for bed and so that any kind of stimulation or alertness that that might come from the technology is kind of calmed. Sure no I, I, I get that but I mean certainly a lot of people have a tv in their in their bedroom, don't they? I mean, that's becoming quite popular. I, 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 I'm very unpopular in my household because uh, I, I'm dead against it. And in fact, I've, I've, I've kind of, this is the one thing I've managed to get away with in my family of putting my foot down. <laughs> um, <laughs> no TV in bedrooms. 
And amazingly, the rest of the family have sort of taken heed. So we don't have TV in the bedrooms, but I think we're probably a bit of a minority. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Well, well done you. I think um, it kind of depends on how we use TV. So if we use TV as a way of relaxing, then it's not a bad thing to watch a little bit of TV before bed and get relaxed. But if you're finding that it's delaying your bedtime, so that actually it's putting back the time that you would normally go to bed because you're watching another episode and another episode, or maybe you're watching something that's really engaging and actually your brain is starting to be stimulated whilst you're watching it, you know, like a kind of whodunit murder mystery. And, uh, you know, that can get you kind of much more engaged before bed. And really we're wanting the exact opposite to happen in order to fall asleep because our bodies need to understand that we're safe, you know, that there's no threat around for us. And, uh, you know, in terms of evolution, that would have been so important that actually our bodies uh, were were telling us that this is a safe place to go to bed, that we're not going to be eaten by a lion or a tiger. So we need to to make sure that we can uh, help our bodies to to realise that. Yeah, certainly I do watch TV. I don't want to give the impression that I'm anti-TV or we live in some kind of Victorian household. That's, that's, That's not the case at all. What about something similar to TV, but just radio? So it's just like an audio stimulation and not a visual stimulation. Yeah. So some people can find that that's actually less stimulating, like you say. And, uh, you know, I think that listening to music uh, or listening to a podcast can be a really good way of relaxing. I think it really does depend on how your brain is engaged in that process. So is are you finding that your heart rate is is fast, that your thoughts are racing, that your muscles are kind of tense? Or are you feeling that actually your body is starting to find this a really relaxing process? Right. So if, if you are listening to this now as, as a podcast and you're trying to get off to sleep, um, maybe it is the thing to do. Because actually, I have noticed quite a few podcasts are aimed at people trying to get to sleep. Absolutely. I'd say the one thing that we tend to recommend for things like listening to podcasts or music or even reading a book is that you turn it off before you try and go to sleep, just because it's a really good lesson. You want your body to be able to fall asleep itself. You don't want it to rely on these other aids to fall asleep because then it might wake up in the night and say, oh, actually, you know, where's my where's my podcast or where's my book that I was reading that that helped me to go to sleep? So always try and turn it off or put the book down before you fall asleep, before you go to bed. Right. Sure. What about some other things uh, that are unhealthful? I suppose the classic one is coffee. That's right. So we know that caffeine has a half-life of about six hours. So it lasts in your system a really long time. It means that if you have a cup of coffee at 12 midday, you'd still have an eighth of it in your system at midnight. So we know that caffeine lasts such a long time. So generally we tend to say no caffeine after lunchtime. But, you know, you can switch to to decaf drinks and that's absolutely fine. Um, Other things that tend to impact on our sleep, things like alcohol. So if we can reduce our alcohol intake, that's definitely best because we know that it impacts on the quality of our sleep. So our sleep is much more fractious. We end up waking up more and we feel less refreshed in the morning and it also suppresses our REM sleep our dreaming sleep so if you can cut back on alcohol or just move it earlier in the evening that tends to help as well and other things just like sort of trying to avoid heavy meals before you go to bed making sure you sort of eat your big meal maybe about two hours before you go to bed that can really help as well 
That that is an odd one because if I have a big meal in the middle of the day, I, I'm kind of I go to sleep, and then if I have a big meal just before I go to sleep, then it's a bit harder to get to sleep. It's kind of uh, that, that one's a slightly odd one. Yeah, it is. You're right. It's because we can feel the sedating effects of eating, um, so it can make us feel more sleepy, but it can then lead to a spike in your energy levels, which then as you go to sleep can kind of fade off and, and it can then sort of disrupt your sleep as your as your body metabolizes the food. So it's always best to try and do all that kind of major metabolic processing a couple of hours before you go to bed. Sure. Well, one thing which actually I've, I've heard a lot of people um, talking about, and I think this one tends to get forgotten, is that a lot of people are, are actually in pain, you know, they, they might have back pain or whatever. Um, and they might not notice so much during the day because, you know, they're doing day stuff. And then it really kind of comes to the fore when everything else is quiet and they're trying to get to sleep and they're, they're just kind of in pain and they can't get to sleep. Is that, is that something that you've uh, you come across? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is partly down to distraction or rather the lack of distraction. So during the day, you've got so many different things that can kind of help you to take your mind off the pain. And of course, when you go to bed, all those distractions go away. It's dark, it's quiet, you're on your own and your mind can then focus on the pain. And of course, pain is partly to do with how we attend to it, how we focus on it, how we engage with it. So I think that can be a real issue for people. And I think that all sorts of approaches can be helpful for pain. So something like mindfulness can be a really good way of trying to change the way you're paying attention to pain, as that can sure. have a really big impact on your on your experience of the pain. Although I, I don't know if you've ever tried, I know this, this isn't exactly, not exactly what you were getting at, but if you've tried telling someone who's got bad back pain, it's all in the mind, you're likely to get a slap actually. Absolutely. And it most certainly isn't all in the mind, but our mind has a brilliant way of of kind of diverting our attention. So we've got to try and harness that when we're when we're oh. managing pain. OK, well, 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 we've gone through some things which aren't helpful. What, what about some some things that might be helpful? Um, perhaps I, I, I didn't mean to ignore uh, Ed, the master of the mattress. Perhaps we can uh, bring him back into the uh, discussion, sort of things that might be helpful. Absolutely. So there's a few things that you can really do to prepare for getting ready for bed. A lot of what Dr. Meyer has already said is really, really helpful information. But also making sure that the temperature of the room is slightly before you go to bed. As we sleep, our body temperature naturally drops. So it's a really helpful way of helping to get to sleep. But also it is really important what mattress you sleep on. Really the best kind of posture for the body is just when you're stood nice and relaxed, there's no tension in the front, no tension in the lower back. So everything that we want to achieve when we're actually going to sleep is recreating that natural relaxed standing posture. So having a good quality mattress that gives you the support where you need it, but also stays that way for year after year. So you're getting a continuous good quality of sleep really, really helps you to get consistency in your sleeping patterns. Okay. Are there any sorts of mattresses that tend to last longer than others? I would definitely always say when looking for a mattress, go for something that's based on research. At Sealy, we do a lot of work with the orthopaedic advisory board in terms of working out what the correct spinal alignment is and then creating a product that really kind of recreates that when you're horizontal. But above all, durability is really, really important. A mattress 
because it gives you quality sleep night after night really helps the body adjust to get in that good sleeping pattern and can really help you with any sleep problems that you do have okay so when i was saying what sort of mattress you know that might last longer could that be you know a spring one or a memory foam one that kind of thing uh, absolutely i mean you can get all sorts of different sorts Lots of mattresses but the durability testing that different manufacturers do does vary so i would always pay attention to the actual guarantee that comes with it make sure that it's a full guarantee rather than a warranty that can decrease over time and pay attention to the length of that guarantee because it is important that's an indication from that manufacturer as to how long that mattress is going to last for and an indication of the quality that's gone in okay into it but actually yeah, ed are uh... Our, our, our line with you isn't terribly good. Um, so perhaps I'll, I'll throw this question uh, uh, to, to both of you. You know, there, there are other things that uh, can be helpful, um, I would imagine, and that is um, making sure it's dark. I mean, that's a pretty basic one. Absolutely. So making sure you've got some blackout blinds or some really dark curtains can really help, especially as the weather's getting lighter and lighter. Our circadian rhythm, uh, which is kind of like our body clock that helps us to understand when it's time to sleep and when it's time to be awake is really regulated by daylight. So that's a really, really key one. Um, but other things like, um, you know, making sure we exercise. So exercise, I know it's sort of one of those ones that we sort of think, oh, yes, we know we should be doing it. But it actually has such a big impact on how well we sleep um, and also making sure that we get up at the same time each day and that we don't have these long lions. Um, you know, the, the long lions or, or kind of trying to catch up on sleep. Um, it can be helpful in the moment, but over time, this can really set our sleep routine off on a on a sort of uneven keel. Um, so actually just making sure we wake up at the same time each day can be really, really helpful. And, and again, just keeping an eye on where we have our kind of phones and, and how much we engage with our phones just before bed or during the night. You, you do hear some stories of how some people say, oh, I only need four hours sleep a night or whatever. And, you know, there's been some famous politicians that say that sort of thing. And um, sometimes I feel a bit jealous of them. But sometimes I think, you know what? I don't believe them. Are there really some people that can just get away with four hours sleep a night? Well, there's a definitely there's a big range in terms of how much sleep people need and how much people uh, sleep people get. But. I mean, I think four hours sleep does sound not very much generally. Uh, I think you'd only find a few people who'd only need four or five hours sleep. Generally, yeah, I was thinking though, of Margaret Thatcher. Famously, she's, she used to say she would get away with that. She did, although she did also have little micro naps. Um, and oh. one of the difficult things about Mike, Margaret Thatcher, of course, is that she went on to develop dementia so we know that and we don't know if that's linked to to uh, her insomnia or her not sleeping but we do know that uh, sleep deprivation does uh, have an impact on things like dementia so it's I suppose it's about uh, sometimes we can get away with less sleep but whether or not it's best for our health is another issue. Mm. Is, is that linked between lack of sleep and dementia is, is, is that proven you know are, are there peer-reviewed published papers about that or is it kind of anecdotal? No, that's right. There's now really clear links between sleep deprivation and all sorts of physical health problems. So dementia is one, uh, obesity is another, cardiovascular disease, 
uh, and some forms of cancer as well. And of course, I suppose the one that's most talked about is mental health. So we know that uh, sleep deprivation is really linked to anxiety and depression in particular, um, and and all all of the other mental health problems as well. So we know that when we're sleep deprived, we're much more likely to be anxious. And when we're anxious, we're much more likely to be sleep deprived. So there's a kind of bi-directional relationship, annoyingly. Yeah, easy to get into sort of a vicious circle, I can imagine. Absolutely. All right. So look, I mean, there's no doubt this is interesting, but also very important stuff. You've given us a few little tips there. But if people are listening to this, and by the sounds of things, you know, one in three people that are listening to this are going to be in trouble with their sleep and potentially looking for help. Where are some uh, good sources, other than listening to this again, where they can get some, you know, real proper help that is, you know, based based on science and, you know, just some good advice? I'll answer that uh, from a mattress point of yes, view. Yes, please um, do. Yeah, go, go ahead, Ed. Yeah, definitely. So from a mattress point of view, I would say have a look at Sealy.co.uk. There's a lot of information about research that we've done into spinal alignment with the orthopedic advisory board, which makes for some really interesting reading. But on top of that, there's also a tool on there called the mattress selector, which really kind of looks into what that individual is looking for in terms of their sleeping position, what's important to them, and comes up with some recommendations. So they've got a really, really good starting point if it is a new mattress that they're looking for. Excellent. All right. Very interesting talking to both you guys. So many thanks for taking the time. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much to the guests on this week's show. And they were Professor Jeffrey Hackett from the TED Clinic and Ed Kirk and Dr. Meyer, both experts on sleep. And of course, thank you to you for listening. And please do have a healthy week until next week. Thank you for listening and please do join us again next time.